Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, there is an old saying. The saying is, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. You ever heard that one? No good deed goes unpunished. We're not sure who originally coined that saying, uh, but all of us have experienced it to some degree in reality, right? I mean, we, we, we all know what it's like to uh, do something good, something right, and then watch it go unrewarded, or even worse, see it get penalized. Okay, let, let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. I, I googled this week uh, punishing good deeds or punished for doing good, and I came across three stories on the internet I'll share with you. First is about a, a young man, a high school student. He's going to, to school one day and he stops at the convenience store to get a Coke and he notices that the trash can outside is on fire. So he tells the owner, you got a trash can on fire. And then he goes to school and finds out that the owner has called ahead and blamed him for starting the fire in the trash can. So he is assigned the duty of picking up trash for a month of lunch breaks. No good deed goes unpunished. Okay, then there's Jamie. Uh, Jamie's out tooling around uh, the streets of his town one day, and he sees a perfectly good drill set in the middle of the road. So he picks it up, and he, he, he reasons that it must have fallen out of somebody's pickup truck. So he posts a notice, a lost and found notice, and leaves his number. And Jamie is fined $165 for littering. No good deed goes unpunished. You know, and then there's Sylvia. I love Sylvia's story. She lives in Cincinnati. These are all true stories, okay? Sylvia's getting in her car uh, one day in town, and she notices that a police officer is uh, coming down the row of cars, and he's ticketing those whose meters have expired. So Sylvia jumps out of her car, reaches into her purse, grabs some change, and starts putting change in the meters of expired, you know, expired meters of other cars. And the police officer tells her to stop just as she's plunking in one more quarter. So he arrests her, he cuffs her, he takes her to jail for depriving the city of revenue. I'm not making this up. No good deed goes unpunished. Now, the examples I've just given you have to do with isolated incidents. But in a much bigger sense, doesn't it sometimes seem as if living a good life doesn't pay? And then you look around you, and there seem to be a lot of people who have no intention of living a good life, and they're flourishing. What's the deal? That's so unfair. That's so unfair. If you've ever felt that way, then Psalm 73 is for you. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the middle book of the Bible, that book of Psalms. Psalm 73, find the outline on your mobile app so you could follow along, fill it in as we go along. We are in the fourth week of a six-part series called Songs of Hope. We're studying a half dozen psalms from that Old Testament book, and today it is Psalm 73. Okay, Psalm 73. Now, Bible scholars note that the 150 psalms we find in the book of Psalms can be categorized according to different themes, a handful of themes. And interestingly, Psalm 73 actually falls into two of those categories. Uh, Psalm 73 is a lament psalm and it is a wisdom psalm. Now, what do I mean lament psalm? Well, it's a complaint. 
Okay, did you know it's okay to complain to God? When, when you see stuff in this world that genuinely stinks, it's okay to tell God, God, that stinks. You know, I, I hope many of us were lamenting this week as we watched the news. And we said, God, what happened to George Floyd, that stinks. And God, the injustice we see in our culture, that stinks. The racial unrest, that stinks. That's a lament. Okay, Psalm 73 is a psalm of lament. The, the author, the psalmist in Psalm 73 is lamenting the fact that even though he's trying to do good, he's trying to follow God, it often goes unrewarded. Meanwhile, those who have no intention of pleasing God with their lives, they seem to be doing just great. And he says, that stinks, God. It's okay to say that. As long as you say it with the right attitude and you're talking to God about it. So Psalm 73 is a lament psalm. It's also a wisdom psalm because it gives us practical steps for dealing with the real life issue. The issue is the unfairness of life. Psalm 73 points us to a long-term view. You know, look at the, the, the long-term view. So if, if your efforts to do good for God's sake, if they're not immediately rewarded, keep in mind that God will ultimately ultimately reward your good deeds. Okay, God will, will see to it that you're fully paid, ultimately. So this psalm then is about God's vindication. God will vindicate you. Three aspects of that vindication, if you're following along in your program, fill this in. First has to do with a frequent observation that the psalmist makes. Okay, let me read to you the opening verses of Psalm 73. And by the way, the author of this psalm, if you look at the top of the psalm, is a dude named Asaph. Okay, Asaph was a choir director. He was a musician whom King David appointed to lead the choirs that led the congregation in worship at the, at the Tent of Meeting, the ancient Israel's worship center. So he wrote 12 of our 150 psalms. By the way, just a side note here. Did you know that some of the worship leaders at Christ Community Church write songs that we sing when we gather for worship on weekends? That's yeah, true. So we got some modern day Asaphs among us. So verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, Asaph begins this psalm by praising the goodness of God toward those who honor him. You know, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, but even though Asaph claims to believe this in theory, you know, Asaph sees something else happening in reality. What, what does he frequently observe? Well, Asaph looks around and he sees arrogant and wicked people prospering. Now, let me define a couple of terms here. When, when Asaph talks about arrogant and, and wicked people, it's not just a category that includes axe murderers and bank robbers and child molesters and St. Louis Cardinals fans. You could tell I'm missing baseball. All right. Arrogant and wicked people includes anyone who has no room for God in their lives. See, God's creator. God is our benefactor. God is, is the great and awesome king. And so anyone who doesn't live in grateful submission to God's leadership is a rebel at heart, is arrogant, is wicked. 
But, but here's Asaph's problem. He looks around and he sees lots of people who aren't living in grateful submission to God's leadership, but they're doing okay. In fact, many of them are enjoying prosperity. You know, that word prosperity at the end of verse 3, it's the Hebrew word shalom. You've heard of shalom before. You probably know the word means peace and that it's often used as a, a greeting. Hey, shalom, dude. But it has a much richer meaning than that in Scripture. It means peace. It means wholeness in every area of life. Wholeness in every area of life. So when Asaph says that he frequently observes the wrong kind of people enjoying prosperity, enjoying shalom, he's not just talking about their wealth, though that's part of it. He's also saying that they seem to be enjoying physical fitness and fulfilling jobs and warm family relationships and popularity and good sex and and you name it, they're grooving on shalom. Look look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. No wonder Asaph says, verse 3, He says, I envied these people. I envied them. You know, they they may not be living God-honoring lives, but from what I can observe, they sure have a lot of shalom going on. You ever find yourself envying other people irrespective of their relationship with God? I mean, come on. We all do it. We're all susceptible to it. Envy has two sides to it. You know, side one is we want what others have, and side two is we don't want them to have it. You know, consider with me for a moment side one of envy. We want what others have. We're all susceptible to this. If you're over 30, you may remember that 80s and 90s TV show, popular TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So our, our tour guide... You know, the host of the show, Robin Leach, he would take us on a a tour of the lifestyles of famous athletes or uh, business entrepreneurs, entertainers, and uh, we would see their seaside villa and their fleet of classic cars and their private jet or their private yacht and their gold-plated bathroom fixtures and their art collection. And by the end of every show, we were envying these people as Robin Leach sipped his glass of champagne and munched on imported cheese. So, but what role did God play in the lifestyles of these rich and famous people? Well, judging by what we saw on the TV show, many of them were self-centered and materialistic and in some cases sexually immoral, scheming, irreligious, exploitative, and those were their good traits. And yet there we were envying them. Side one of envy is we, we want what others have. Now, maybe it's not their, their wealth. Maybe what we want is their, their good looks or their job or their golf handicap. Maybe what we want is their college education or their ethnicity or their 2.5 kids. We, we envy them even if they don't have a close relationship with God. We want what, they, what they've got. Side two of envy is we don't want them to have it. Okay, we don't want them to have, this is where our fairness meter kicks in. We don't want them to have it because that doesn't seem fair to us. You know, for example, let's say, you know, we've been 
wanting a child and struggling with infertility and we've been praying oh god if you get if you give us a baby boy baby girl we will raise that child to know and love jesus but no babies we got good friends and they got three kids and they announce a fourth one's on the way and they have no relationship with god they're never in church their kids know squat about jesus it's so unfair what about this we're trying to close a big business deal with a important customer and so we're completely honest about all the hidden costs we want to act in integrity but our competitor comes along and signs them up while, while we know he has kept certain things to himself. There's no way he can deliver on what he's promised. It's so unfair. He got the deal. Or what about this? You're a high school student. You know, and you're not invited to many parties. And the, the reason you're not invited to parties is because most of your friends know that you don't drink and you don't sleep around and you know that's a lot of what's going on at the parties. But you, but you look around at school and the, the popular kids are the ones who are going to the parties and doing the drinking and doing the, the sleeping around. That's so unfair. See, th this is what Asaph frequently observed. And in his heart, he thought that God should reward those who are trying to follow him and punish those who aren't. But in reality, he saw just the opposite happening. Number two, a frustrated complaint. Okay, back to Psalm 73. We're going to pick it up at verse 13. Asaph says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. So Asaph is honked off, okay? All, all the efforts he puts into trying to, to honor God and, and obey God, they don't seem to be, be paying off. Surely in vain, he says, I have kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands in innocence. This is a frustrated complaint. Now, there's a word in these verses I just read to you I want you to circle. Okay, this is where we, we mark up our Bibles. Uh, someone has said that the, uh, you know, a marked up Bible is a sign of a person whose life God is marking up. So freely mark up your Bible. The word I want you to circle in verse 13 is the word heart. It is a key word in Psalm 73. In fact, it pops up not in, in verse 13 alone, but in five other places. Uh, while you got your, your pen ready, just circle them. Uh, you'll see the word heart in verse 1. And then in verse 7, uh, you see it here in verse 13. Drop down to verse 21, circle it in verse 21. You get to verse 26 two times in verse 26. Circle it twice. Now, why do I say that heart is a key word in Psalm 73? Because our frustration with God's fairness or his seeming lack of fairness is a heart issue. See, see long before we complain out loud about, uh, about our frustrations, long, long before we do something stupid or sinful because God isn't playing fair with us, we're already ruminating in our hearts about this issue. You know, how many of you have discovered that all of the bad things we say, all the bad things we do, they start in our hearts? 
You know, Jesus was fond of pointing this out. And in fact, if you're following our Bible-savvy daily reading schedule, you came across it this past week in, in, in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 21, Jesus says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, and then all these evil deeds come from inside out and defile a person, Jesus says. Which is why the writer of Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. God's word tells us to constantly monitor our hearts. What's going on inside of us? Because if it's not good and we're stewing on it, it's going to come out in some nasty words. It's going to come out in some sinful actions. If we're honked off, listen, if we're honked off because our attempts to live a God-pleasing life aren't being rewarded, If we're honked off because in vain I have kept uh, my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Friends, we need to deal with that attitude before it poisons what we say and what we do. Now, now to, to Asaph's credit, that's what he's doing in Psalm 73. You know, he's working on his attitude. And he's keeping a lid on his mouth while he does so. He's not letting toxic stuff, you know, fly out of his mouth. Drop down to verse 15 again. He says, if I had spoken out like that, if I had, but I didn't. Okay, if I had voiced my, my, my gripe that God isn't dealing fairly with people, he's not rewarding those who are doing good and punishing those who are doing bad. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Now again, let me remind you, this is a a psalm of lament and it's legitimate for Asaph to do what he's doing here. He's talking to God in private about his frustrated complaint. He's not talking to everybody else in public about his frustrated complaint. In fact, he says, you know, if I did that, if I spoke out like that, then I would be betraying your children, Lord. What does he mean by that? Let me illustrate what he means. Okay, years ago, I had a guy on my staff at, at Christ Community Church who was a chronic complainer. He complained about everything. Uh, everything was unfair. Okay, we didn't pay him enough money, he thought. His salary wasn't enough. Uh, his job required too many hours. Uh, he, we weren't giving him leadership responsibilities that he felt he, he deserved. And I had a sense, I suspected that he was voicing these complaints at home. Now, why do I say that? Because over time, I watched as his children lost all interest, as they grew up, all interest in church or in God, and walked away. Coincidental? I think that their dad's chronic complaining poisoned them. Let me say, if you're a student who is constantly complaining about your teachers... If you're an athlete who's constantly complaining about your coach, if you're a divorcee who's constantly complaining about your ex, if you're an employee who's constantly complaining about your boss, if you're an Illinois resident who's constantly complaining about your governor, oh, now I'm meddling, right? If you're constantly complaining, you may wake up one day to the realization that you've poisoned not just your own life, but everybody around you, your kids, your friends, your coworkers. 
And so I would say to you in the words of Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Because everything you say, everything you do flows out of it. Guard your heart. Number three, third aspect of God's vindication, a fresh perspective. A fresh perspective. Some of you may be wondering, is is Asaph ever going to turn the corner? Well, here he goes. Look Look at verse 16. Okay, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, in other words, when I tried to understand why following God doesn't get rewarded but not following God does, it troubled me deeply, he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Now, before we take a look at what Asaph's fresh perspective is, let's not miss where he gets it. Okay, let's not miss where, where does Asaph go to deal with his gnarly heart? Where, where, where does he go to gain some helpful insights and to turn things around? Okay, look, look at verse 17 again. He says, I entered the sanctuary of God. Asaph went to church. Asaph went to church. And he didn't have to go online because there wasn't a pandemic at the time. Sorry. You know, I, I often think about our weekend services as, at Christ Community as an opportunity for me to recalibrate my personal compass. Now, hang in there as I explain this, this metaphor. Okay, my, my, my compass, the needle of my compass has been magnetized so that it'll point true north. And true north is a Godward direction, a God-pleasing direction. But what I discover all through the week is that there are other magnetic fields that are pulling, tugging on my needle, twisting it this way and that way. Those other magnetic fields include stuff like junk I watch on TV or arguments I have with my wife. You know, selfishly spending my money on myself, uh, passing on opportunities to serve others. You know, watching news and getting anxious about everything going on in the world. You know, one of those magnetic fields is even a grumpiness over God's seeming unfairness with how he treats people. And, And so by the time I get to church, oh my goodness, my needle is no longer pointing due north. But then I gather with God's people. You know, don't miss this. Asaph doesn't say, you know, none of it made sense to me until I went out and took a walk in the woods or until I jumped on my motorcycle and I went for a ride or played around a golf or, or even until I listened to a Christian podcast or I, I sat down and read the Bible on my own. No, until I went to the sanctuary, of, until I gathered with other believers. So on the weekend, I gather with other believers, even online. I gather with other believers. And and what do we do when we gather? We sing songs of praise to God. We laud God for his many attributes. He's amazingly kind and gracious and holy and omnipotent and so on. We sing songs about that. We, We take communion, reminding ourselves of what Christ paid to redeem us. You know, we bring our offerings, and that just underscores the fact that, God, you own everything, and I bring my offering as a way to remind myself of that. We listen to our pastor preach a sermon from God's Word, and it's our pastor, our church, a message that God gave him specifically for us. And when that happens, 
When I've gathered with God's people, what, what church does is it recalibrates my compass needle and I'm pointing true north again. And when we truly enter into this experience, not just going through the motions in a road fashion, it recalibrates our compass needle, friends. Our needle returns to pointing north. Once again, we're headed in the right direction. We've got a fresh perspective, thanks to church. So what was the fresh perspective that Asaph gained by going to the sanctuary of God? Look at the last line of verse 17. He says, I understood their final destiny. I understood their final destiny. I understood the, the final destiny of people who don't follow God, even though it may seem like they're prospering in this life. And the flip side of that, we're going to learn a few verses down in, verse, in Psalm 73, is that Asaph also came to understand the final destiny of people who do follow God, even though it may seem as if they're not prospering in this life. So let's look at the first of those two groups, okay? What ultimately happens to those who don't follow God? I'll pick it up at verse 18. He says, God, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Now, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, look at all the verbs in these verses. Cast down to ruin, suddenly destroyed, completely swept away, despised by the Lord. Wow. People who choose not to seek God. People who choose not to worship God. People who choose not to obey God. Although it may appear, uh, may, may appear that they temporarily prosper in this life, ultimately... They're in big trouble. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, it describes their, their destiny, their final destiny as eternal death. See, when we go our way instead of God's way, when we pull apart from God because God is the source of life, the consequence is death, eternal death. And sometimes, sometimes we even catch a preview. We catch a glimpse of what that eternal death is going to be like in the here and now. You know, a, a person, we watch a person plummet from prosperity, from shalom down to the pits because they're not following God. Have you ever, have you ever seen that happen? You know, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, come October, uh, a guy by the name of Daryl Strawberry at one of our, our Weekend Inspiring Stories uh, events. Daryl, as some of you know, Daryl was a Major League Baseball player in his rookie year. He was Rookie of the Year, uh, went on to uh, eight-time All-Star, four-time World Series champ. I mean, he had the world by the tail. Uh, he played with the, the 1986 Mets, okay? And the Mets were, uh, were a fabulous team. They were called the Miracle Mets uh, back then. They won 108 games. They, they ended up at the end of the season, they were 21 and a half games in front of the second place team in their division. 21 and a half games out front. And so they went to the World Series and they played the Boston Red Sox and they won the World Series. And when they won the World Series, their boss, their manager, you know, proclaimed to, to the sportscasters, the bad guys won. That's what Davey Johnson said, the bad guys won. What did he mean, the bad guys? Well, the 19... 86 Mets were notorious off the field for their debauchery. I mean, they were drunks. 
They were druggies. Daryl Strawberry describes in, in a, a biography that I'm reading a, about him right now, he d- describes going to a party in Manhattan and there were silver platters piled high with cocaine. They were, they were womanizers. You know, they were hooking up with women in hotel rooms and at parties and even occasionally in the locker room after a game. They were brawlers. They got into fights with everybody. They ripped up the inside of a commercial airplane one time on their return trip to New York. They they were not nice guys, and Daryl Strawberry was leader of the pack. But guess what? The bad guys won. See, this is exactly what drove Asaph nuts. The bad guys won the World Series. The bad guys were multimillionaires. But you know, that was the 1986 Mets. You know, if you keep moving forward with the story, in 1987, the Mets began to turn on each other. Daryl Strawberry says they fought like crackheads in an alley. Nobody could get along with anybody else. And the owner of the Mets was so embarrassed by their off-field behavior that he began to dismantle the team, the championship team. He began to trade players away until by the beginning of the 90s, nobody from that championship team was, was left. Daryl Strawberry himself, on a personal note, Daryl's life went from bad to worse. You know, there was domestic violence. He was in and out of rehab for alcohol and drugs. He was arrested for pointing a loaded gun at his wife. He was a mess. So the bad guys didn't win, not ultimately. The bad guys didn't win. Not even a few years down the road did they win. That's what ultimately happens to those who don't follow God. Self-destruction, if not in this life, certainly in the world to come. So what ultimately happens to those who do follow God? Let me read to you the closing verses of Psalm 73. Picking it up at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So Asaph finally answers the question that's been bugging him all along. What's the question? Is following God worth it? You know, is following God worth it? If if it doesn't lead to prosperity, if it doesn't lead to shalom, if it doesn't lead to popularity at school or a good job or an attractive spouse or athletic achievements or whatever, is it worth it? And Asaph replies, absolutely. Here's what I get out of it, ultimately. Two things. In this world, I get an awesome relationship with God. In this world, I get an awesome relationship with God. Look at the many phrases in the verses I just read to you that mention Asaph's closeness to God. Verse 23, yet I am always with you and you hold me by your right hand. Middle of verse 25, earth has nothing I desire besides you. Middle of verse 26, God is the strength of my life. He's my portion forever. 
Verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Listen, friends, you can have all the shalom this world offers, but none of it holds a candle. None of it comes even close to a rich relationship with God. That's what I hope you're going to get a, an opportunity to hear from Daryl Strawberry come October. So if you've been tempted to think that following God doesn't bring reward, if you've been tempted to envy those who aren't following God and seeming to prosper, it's time to reevaluate your relationship with God because if that relationship is what it should be, there is nothing better in this world. And the downside of preaching to an empty auditorium is I don't get any amens. But I hope at home right now you're saying yes. Yes, there is nothing in this world better than a close, a rich relationship with God. Now here's the the second benefit that Asaph says he gets out of following God. In the next world, he says, I get eternal life. Okay, look, look again at verse 24. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. You know, the Bible describes in awesome detail the new heaven and new earth that God will one day create for his followers. We will experience eternal life in God's presence. Are you one of those followers? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, God's Son? Has Jesus become your Savior, paying the penalty for your sins? The penalty, as I said a few moments ago, the penalty is death. We've all disconnected from God, the source of life. Jesus came to the planet to take the death we deserve to die. That's what he was doing on the cross. He rose from the dead and he, he offers you forgiveness and new life. Has he become your Savior? Let me tell you, he's not your savior if he's not also your king because Jesus Jesus is a package deal. So is Jesus your king? Are are, are you giving Jesus your allegiance, your worship, your obedience? You know, if Jesus is not your king, let me tell you, he's not your savior either. It's ultimately worth following God, even when it seems like we're not immediately rewarded in this life because we get a rich relationship with God here and now and we get eternal life in a brand new heaven and new earth. Let me close with one of my favorite stories. Okay, you've heard me tell this a bazillion times, but I I love this story. Story about two farmers. Okay, one of them is a Christ follower and one isn't. And one day the Christ follower is on his way to church with his family and he sees his neighbor out plowing in his field. And so he pulls over and he says, hello. And the neighbor says, where are you going? And he says, well, I'm taking my family to church. And the neighbor says, well, why are you wasting your time at church? You should be working your field. And the Christ follower says, because I want to worship God. I want to be with God's people and because I want to hear God's word taught. You know, it makes a difference in my life and the way that I live. And I know that God will give me a good harvest. And his neighbor said, yeah, we'll see about that. Well, harvest time comes and who has the bigger crop? They take their, their harvest, their crops, you know, to market. And you would think the Christ follower, right? But that's not the case. His neighbor has the bigger harvest and he taunts the Christ follower. He says, see, I got the bigger harvest. And the Christ follower responds, yeah, but it's not the final harvest. It's not the final harvest. 
If you've been wrestling with God's fairness because it seems as if following Jesus is not paying rich dividends, it's not worth it. Okay, just remember there's a final harvest coming. If you've been envious of those who aren't following Jesus and they're prospering, they got all, all sorts of shalom going on, remember it's not the final harvest yet. Devote yourself to following Christ wholeheartedly. Live for him completely, friend, and look forward to the final harvest. Enjoy your rich relationship with God now and anticipate what he has in store for you in the future. Let me pray with you. Lord God, we just close in prayer by saying, forgive us, God, when we're foolish. Like Asaph, we say, you know, my foot almost slipped because I just had a twisted perspective. But then I came into the sanctuary. Then I gathered with God's people. Then I sang your praise. Then I heard your word taught. And you brought it all into perspective. Today, God, would you see to it that our compass needle gets pointing true north once again? Take away our envy of those who aren't following you and seem to be prospering. Let us hold out the good news of Christ to these folks and anticipation of them embracing Christ as well. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.